Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. All right, all right. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode. I am very excited to have Mr. Ted Ross on the show. So Ted, thanks so much for being here, man. Hey, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited for this one. Um, and of course, we always love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing today. Well, it's a, it's a long, circuitous journey. I uh, lived here in Colorado for the last 25 years, moved here with IBM, spent 33 years in a professional career that included IBM, Pricewaterhouse, Arthur Anderson. That ended at about age 55, and I realized, ooh, I got to do something that's important. And I went back to the things I cared about when I was 18. So retired about five years ago and have had the journey now into the Inland Ocean Coalition, the Waterkeeper Alliance. And uh, my inner 18-year-old is coming out after all that, you know, family, kid, parenthood, career stuff is, is behind you. Getting back to your roots. Yeah, I had, I had Vicky on the show. She was actually one of my first real guests, I would say. I had I had Micah on, and then I had a Vicky, I think, after that. I was, I'm really happy that she came on. It kind of helped me get into this community a little bit. Uh, where are you from originally? Um, complicated story. Uh, University of Michigan in college, born in Oakland, California. My dad was an odd combination of a naval officer and a Pacific Islands anthropologist. So I bounced around, uh, you know, Boston, Kansas, California, Michigan, Illinois, spent a year living in a grass hut, the British Solomon Islands when I was seven years old, but mostly uh, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois and the University of Michigan after about age seven, eight, ten. Pacific Islands anthropologist. That means that you would go and live on these isolated islands in the middle of the ocean and, and learn about these cultures or what? Yep, yep, yep. Only one. My, my dad's uh, field studies was on the island of Malaita on the, uh, at the time it was British Solomon Islands, now the Solomon Islands in the, the mid 60s. Have you been there? Uh, I, as a seven year old, have not since, you know, and I suspect it's probably changed a little bit. But in any event, there was a, a a formative experience for a seven-year-old. Very, very interesting. Would you, so where did your interest in water conservation begin? You mentioned this 18-year-old um, 18, 18 self kind of coming back out now. Sounds like you've had a bit of experience with, you've been all over the place. So yeah, I'm curious, where, where does your interest in water originate? Uh, spontaneous. Yeah, you know, it's got to be the, uh, some version of sort of the music of the spheres out there that as a kid, interested in tropical fish, aquariums, lived in Hawaii for a year, uh, never got good at surfing, but certainly could appreciate it, swimming in the ocean, snorkeling, now a scuba diver, you know, always like beaches, oceans, you know, you get the sense that flowing water is the lifeblood of our planet, and it's something that, that's everywhere and underappreciated, and so it, it resonated with my soul. Definitely. I would say very underappreciated that people don't realize how basically our whole lifeblood is water. And we're mostly composed of water. And we kind of just, especially when we live inland in Colorado, where a lot of people live in cities, they don't appreciate how essential water is to our way of life or just life in general. So, uh, Ted, I'm going to ask you, what, what is a water keeper then? Uh, a water keeper is couple things, a bunch of things, yeah, you know, but let me go back to the, the phrase itself kind of, you know, may or may not exactly be true, but the imagery is this 
sort of Scottish guy watching the, the watching the stream bed in the 1400s. And I think it was a, a medieval role of somebody whose job was to be the voice of the watershed and protect it from, you know, people and abuses. Uh, that imagery lasts to today. And the Waterkeeper Alliance is really two things. It's a group of about 350 individual organizations around the world that have unique and specific jurisdiction to protect, protect uh, a watershed somewhere in the world. And then it's a global movement of all those organizations coordinated in an attempt to provide swimmable, drinkable, fishable waters for, you know, basically everybody on the planet. So it is a environmental advocacy role tied to a very, very specific local geography that's now building a global, you know, movement, if you will, of like-minded people who share that same goal and objective. Absolutely. And we need you guys. But why, why do we need water keepers? Isn't the water cycle just a very natural thing? You know, it kind of just all flows back into itself. We don't we don't lose water, do we? Uh, you, you, you don't lose it, but you abuse it. Is okay. the uh, if you look at sort of the math, you know, there's there's numbers not quite right. But say you take all the water on the globe is call it 1400 kilometers, big circle of it. 97% of that is salt water. So 3% of that is fresh water. Of that remaining 3%, 97% of that is frozen glaciers or groundwater. So the tiny, tiny percent of, of flowing fresh water in the planet in rivers, lakes, and streams is an extraordinarily precious resource. And importantly, that's where all the great stuff happens. That's where biology happens. That's where chemistry happens. That's where um, recreation happens. That's where, you know, scenic beauty happens. And certainly it all flows downhill, evaporates, goes uphill. But what happens in between is, is incredibly open for abuse. You know, that we, uh, you know, we build, we overuse lies, we divert, we poison, we, uh, you know, ignore, we channel, we concretize. And so there clearly is a theme, not just of water, but the watershed in and around it. You know, and I think that's the essential point of those watersheds, you know, is where the, the health of our planet pivots. And if we don't pay attention to it, they'll disappear. Yeah. Well, that 3% is what all mammals live off, is it not? Uh, life is impossible without fresh water. So there you yeah. go. So it's really important. And that's why I'm, I'm glad to have you on the show today to talk about it. So let's let's start small scale here and then maybe we'll we'll get to some other topics. But um, what, what recommendations do you have for preserving our local Boulder Creek? Because I oft, I walk by it pretty often and I always see like Gatorades or plastic bags floating in it and it always pisses me off. I actually did a project in business management class where me and my friends went and picked up like trash from the boulder creek and then we made like a music video out of it but so so how do we preserve boulder creek and then why does it matter on like a local scale how does it affect our community yeah well yeah, and let me connect the dots on the big scale you know our, our water keeper boulder water keeper is uniquely focused on boulder creek which is a small little mountain creek and you've seen it you know if it tops out at three or four or five hundred cubic feet per second in its biggest flow you know, it's a small thing. But that said, it has exactly the same problems as the Columbia River, the Hudson River, the Mekong River, which are 
you know, uh, development, dams, diversions, um, you know, E. coli po uh, poisoning or uh, impairment, uh, microplastics, uh, encroachment, development. And, and so there's clearly, regardless of the size of the, of the watershed, a focus on human behavior not being destructive on that. Um, and then there's this odd little punchline that, you know, Colorado is the mother of rivers. All the great rivers are, you know, a sizable percentage of the great mother of rivers start here in Colorado. Uh, Colorado is one of two uh, headland states. There's no water flowing into Colorado. So sort of the, the catchphrase is what happens in Colorado does not stay here. <laughs> so whatever drop lands in Boulder Creek, you know, ends up in Omaha, Kansas City, St. Louis, and New Orleans, and the Gulf of Mexico. So we have a responsibility for the entire North American watershed to, to at least pay attention to it. Okay, what does that mean locally? Uh, we have a gross reservoir problem. We have a, uh, which is an, an intention to bring more water across from the Western slope under the continental divide. We have a South CU development problem. We have an E. coli uh, impairment issue defined by the EPA running down through campus. You know, we have ongoing development. Uh, we have incredible diversions for agriculture and golf, golf courses and, and lawns. And uh, it's, a, it's a little watershed at risk, regardless of the size. And, and we all have a, hopefully a responsibility to, to, to care about it and pay attention to it. Yeah, whether, I mean, whether you ignore it or not, it's still there. But how do we, where do we begin with all these different problems, whether it be development or E. coli or whatever, where do we start to actually get effective action? Because that's the kind of the whole point of me doing this podcast is I'm trying to ask people who are very educated on these topics to get actual solutions so that I can go out and we can like promote them. So where do we begin? You know, it's hard to, I've definitely lately been kind of getting lost in the mess of everything that's going on. The more and more I learn about all these environmental issues, I realize, oh, I got to do this, got to do this, got to do that. So it's like, I think it's helpful to at least get some sort of like starting point, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and so I would go, whew, first and foremost, yeah, first and foremost, it's an awareness thing. Yeah, you know, we in Boulder think we're in the greenest place on earth. You know, we don't really realize how problematic our, even our green impact is on the environment. So there's an awareness thing, you know, and there's a tiptoe in the future into a rights of nature sort of awareness. Boulder Creek is a entity that deserves recognition, acknowledgement, respect, and appreciation. So that's number one, care about the creek. Number two, each and everywhere you are involved with any building project, development project, recreational project, I would say respect the the borders of the of the watershed there. You know, everywhere in the creek, if we were just to move the riparian zone, you know, 10 yards back from the creek, it would it would improve significantly and hugely. You what know, would that mean exactly? You should move uh, the riparian zone? Um landscaping, natural vegetation, you know, you know, so we should not put parking lots, we should not put bike paths, we should not put bridges, you know, be be very, very, very cautious of not just the uh, the the edge of the water, but you, you know, move back ten or fifteen yards back into it, and that's where we ought to be focusing on vegetation, uh, soil preservation. Uh, you know, so wherever you can protect and preserve, you know, not just the flowing water, but the edges uh, of the landscaping around it. And then, and then on top of that, we can all uh, just use less water. 
be caught, careful what you irrigate, be careful what you, what you fill your hot tub with, be careful what you do with your lawn, be careful how you wash your car, be careful with your showers. You know, water is a limited resource and be careful what, how you use it, be careful what you put into it. Don't flush pharmaceuticals, you know, don't limit what you, you compost as opposed to put stuff down the disposal. You know, be very, very conscious of the water in and of itself. So, yeah. so the, what, what each and every individual can do in Boulder is recognize the creek as something that's important. Uh, do what you can to help the bigger plans, preserve the boundaries of it, and just be judicious with your use and the impact you have on the water that goes into the creek. Yeah, if everyone works together, we can get big action. But I think what you said about uh, awareness is super, super important. I'm trying to do that with this podcast. But yeah, I, th I think it's it's hard for people to be like, oh, in 50 years, we'll run out of, of water. I think that's what Aaron Citron had said. If we can keep consuming at the rate we're consuming, we'll be out of fresh water in 56 years. I don't know if that's exactly right. But it's hard for people to be like, oh, we'll worry about it then. But it's like, no, if we take action now, we can. Well, well how can we? I don't really understand how it works. How could we? Is there a, a sustainable or a regenerative way to consume fresh water, or are we inevitably going to run out no matter what? It, it, and it's not so much run out; it's it's a priority issue. And yeah. um, and and we're a we're we're a foul player in that here on the Denver East Coast slope. I mean, I mean, in Colorado, roughly eighty percent of the water is on the western slope. Eighty percent of the people are on the eastern slope, and vice yeah. versa. And so we are a poor citizen for the planet by taking water from Dillon Reservoir, from the Fraser River, running it under the Continental Divide, and then spraying it across the Front Range. Um, and what, what that means is it's really less apparent here, but everywhere from the Continental Divide to California, we're looming crisis over do you use water for industry, for agriculture, for the environment, for recreation, and sooner or later, there's gonna to have to be a choice. Do you want broccoli or salmon or silicon chips or rafting? You know, and there's, a, I think, a reasonably good point of view that all the, the plans based on the Colorado River were, were calibrated in, in a unnaturally wet time. And if there's a 10 or 20 year drought, you'll be able to pick maybe two of those, or worst case scenario is you pick all your options and do give them 10%, which kills everything. So, so it's not exactly that we're running out, but we're probably misusing and we're certainly not giving it the uh, cultural appreciation we need and nor the, the economic reality of what water actually costs. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, it's very strange that we've kind of structured our society to be a based on extraction and consumption we take and we consume and we take and we consume and what i'm really getting into is trying to find ways to focus people more on restoration and like resilience and and becoming a active part of the system because when we're rerouting these these streams we're rerouting them for our use whether it be like you said for agriculture or for i think gary mentioned like how most pe like most of the water is used for just watering our lawns which is like mind-blowing to me that just a cultural phenomenon would allow us to kind of destroy the basically the most important resource in in the animal kingdom or just the whole world in general so how do you think we can get people to focus more more on, on this kind of restoration or regenerative um, way of living? There's the, the, the big animal question of how do we change the culture? 
you know, and I would say there's a, and I'm part and parcel of it, you know, 20, 30 year sort of baby boomer bias towards narcissistic conspicuous consumption. Yeah. You know, you, you know, maybe it's we late stage. Yeah. Yeah. We maybe there's a late stage sort of capitalism kind of culture out there that, um, the dividing line is yes, people can be horribly consumptive. Humans might not need to be. And so I think when we as a culture realize that, you know, there's a 10 or 20 or 50 or a hundred year, thousand year sort of cycle. And if you, you know, we shouldn't use it to the point of, of, of it being gone, you know? And so I think hopefully a younger generation is a little more attuned into leaving something behind for the generation that follows them, you know? And, and if that becomes, part of the culture, you know, then, then we all will have done our job in a good way. Oh, so you're putting it on me, Ted, huh? Yeah. We've already played our cards. You know, we already have the uh, 7,000 square foot house with two people living in it, <laughs> 18 toilets and you, okay, maybe that was a little more than necessary. So just maybe but at the same time we want to inspire people rather than coerce them because americans absolutely despise coercion so it's a very tricky song and dance to get people to change their habits and change the culture without thinking that they're being forced to do so and that's where i think nonprofit organizations come in because they do inspire people and you're the, are you the founder of boulder water keeper is that right yeah the the journey here was part and parcel of the Inland Ocean Coalition in the theme, you've heard some of that, that, that Colorado's not naturally an ocean place, but it's intuitive when you think through it, that watershed protection is a key part of that. Mm -hmm. In that conversation, started working with Gary, who you also meet, met and said, each wow. and every watershed in the world needs a water keeper. And so four years ago, launched the creation of the Boulder Water Keeper with exactly this mission and objective in mind. So yeah, it's uh, for better or worse, something I've created and we're looking for partners and people and volunteers and building the culture around it. And I think as you tiptoed, it's not coercion. We are potentially on one of a great shifts, I think in the environmental advocacy world, which is breaking out the partisan point of view you know, and it roughly saying, let's put conservation back into conservatism. You know, I mean, this, what we're talking about is not really a left or right thing. It's a, uh, it's a forever thing. Yeah. You know, and I think arguably in the environmental world, there was a, there was a huge patriarchal era, you know, John Muir, Teddy Roosevelt, yeah, you know, Prince Philip, uh, you know, building the, the nature conservancy up through, say, the 1950s. Starting in the 60s, there was sort of a hippie version of it, which was, you know, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, you know, the blue dot pictures from Apollo, the founding of Greenpeace. There was very much a grassroots advocacy thing. And I think right now we're on the cusp of the next iteration, which is somehow how do we turn environmental advocacy into a I'll say a career into an enterprise, into a, a corporate type structure, yes. into something that that starts and acts like a responsible organization. You know, we have goals, we have objectives, we have donors, we have, you know, management models, we have targets, we have measures, we have metrics, we have uh, 
cooperation, you know, persuasion, you know, some ways it's not all that different than, you know, running Coca-Cola. It's just, mm -hmm. you got to have a goal and you got to have the resources to build towards it. If we do that, you know, then it's not coercive behavior. It's participative, collaborative behavior of people back to that essential point who respect and appreciate and value natural resources, in this case, rivers, glaciers, waters, lakes, you know, for their own integrity, into um, their own value. And if we do that, you know, what, then hopefully more and more people will start to participate. Yeah. And I think using using art and getting the youth involved is super, super essential because people need to feel need to feel kind of on more than just like a cognitive level. People need to connect with what they're doing on an emotional level to really get fully committed. So I think I think nonprofit groups are really good with that because they always try to make it a very social experience. So I think that's great. And then, of course, um, making having economic incentives, obviously, is very important as well. So beyond conservation, you seem to be focused a lot on kind of either what is it like tearing down dams or this this idea that the hum the unnatural human intervention on the natural water system is a problem so i just wanted to ask you wh why i don't even why do we have dams to begin with is it most of them aren't generating energy right there there's some sort of they're creating artificial lakes or something yeah if you take a, a long historical view there's an argument that every bit of North America, sort of a little bit west of central Missouri and a little bit east of central California, not really hab habitable for humans. That, you know, that there is great huge chunks of Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, that just are, are not, not suitable for human habitation. Deserts. Uh, you, yeah, and so what has, happened a little bit just because we could and there was this epically significant economic and cultural event of building the hoover dam outside of las vegas mm -hmm. uh hydraulic hydrologically it's 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 stunningly beautiful you know narrow canyon tall elegant architecture but what that does is allows you to irrigate air condition electrify you know, cities like Phoenix, like Las Vegas, like, you know, to a certain extent, Denver, it, you know, there's great parts of North America that probably, you know, you know, should not probably have a lot of people in them. Uh, back to the very, very, very first question you asked, which is, why do I care about water? It was yeah. that sort of music of the spheres thing. All these mega dams are, are wounds and sores on our, our North American continent. You know, they're disruptive to the natural rhythm and flow of the water on the continent. And once again, if you take a really long-term perspective, you know, they won't last forever. You know, the four dams on the Snake River are probably functionally defunct right now. Uh, Glen Canyon Dam probably is not going to fill ever again, or, or the lake, the lakes, the Lake Powell. Um some of them are probably irreversible. You know, the Hoover Dam provides enough energy to support, you know, tens of millions of people, you know, but selected ones of them probably should start disappearing, returning the water to its natural flow, returning the fishing and the biology to its natural habitat. Um, clearly that's not exactly an economic article, 
but it's mm. much more of a philosophic, metaphysical, long-term, sustainable, you know, be right with the world, you know, kind of argument that says stuff I'm more interested in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, ir irrigating hay crops in Colorado at 9,000 feet with a six-week growing season with water taken from the Colorado River, you know, makes no sense. And it's only because of the extraordinary public's work commitment of the Bureau of Recl Reclamation to dam most of the rivers in the West. And I would say the unawareness of the actual economic cost water is perceived to be free it isn't you know so we we're able to distort the economic value of crops with that with basically subsidized water that you know it's not sustainable so if I, I look 100 years out i would hope some of these dams actually start to disappear and the ecosystem returns a little bit more to its natural state and conversely people start to densify you know and and there's a room for people to live in Arizona, but it probably looks more like a Martian colony <laughs> than, uh, you know, than Chicago. Where did this, where did this perspective originate for you? How did you learn? How, where, where did you get this perspective from? Cause it's very like unique. I don't hear many people talking about this kind of stuff. I, I, I would want to ask you next, um, what would a deconstruction effort even look like? But I've never heard anyone talk about tearing down dams. People are all about, you know, building up economics and we want to grow America and have more cities. So I'm just curious, where do you, where do you, where did you get this information? Um, probably, <laughs> A lifetime of listening and watching, feeling yeah. and flowing. There's that metaphysical sense that water is supposed to flow downhill freely. Mm -hmm. That said, I'll come around to the the clearest instantiation of it is probably this sense that there's a town in Idaho, Idaho called Salmon, Idaho. Mm -hmm. And the point being that not that long ago, truly remarkable circumstance of fish would swim from the mouth of the Columbia to Idaho every year. And it's yeah. the, the salmon. If you're looking for evidence of serendipity on this planet, you could argue that salmon are it, you know, yeah. that here's a fish that spawns in six inches of cold water up in the mountains at an elevation of, of, of seven, 8,000 feet swims out to the ocean, swims around for two years, grows to be three feet long, two, three feet long, comes back to about a hundred yards from where it, it, it was, eggs was laid, recreates the cycle again, you know, and, and for tens of thousands of years, that was the normal state of affairs until we decided we wanted, uh, you know, more shipping and more electricity and, right. you know, this, and that. you know, so I think it's, uh, a sense if you listen to the natural ebb and flow of the planet, dams are disruptive to that. And um, as I said earlier, they're not sustainable economically or culturally or biologically or in just physically. They're going to come down sooner or later. Why not now? Yeah. Amen. Hey, metaphysics, man. I love it. No doubt <laughs> about it. You know, everyone... I think everyone's so focused in their head. It is good to kind of reconnect with the natural world and see how things really want to be. Um, I was going to bring up salmon at some point. Isn't that that Idaho? It was like the largest natural transfer of nutrients like in, in the, 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 the world, right? The salmon would bring all the whatever, the bacteria and stuff from the, the rivers into the ocean or, or vice versa. And that's kind of they're they're like all dying now, aren't they? 
Um, you, you froze for a second. Could you go back thirty seconds? In, in oh yeah, first no part? worries. No, I'm just, I'm just, um, I'm just raving over the salmon because it is, it was like the largest transfer of nutrients, like in the natural world, right? They would take all these bacteria, whatever it is they bring when they, when they swim up the river and bring all this stuff from the ocean and bring it into the the natural or whatever up up into the what is it you said it was in idaho where this would happen well it's, it's everywhere alaska all of western canada oregon washington parts of california up to a thousand miles inland in certain places and um i think it created some really interesting indigenous cultures all throughout those areas that were based upon you know the the gift of of salmon coming to you your your yeah. your lifetime of food would swim right to you you know and that changed your view of the world a little bit and you know it goes both ways that that all the the salmon come up they spawn they die that fertilizes all the 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 growth you know their their carcasses you know deposit all that biological activity up and down the stream and you know you end up with beavers and elk and wolves and trees and willows and hawks and bald eagles and all that so it's a good thing yeah and we're seeing record levels of death like the, the, the those 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 numbers have dwindled over the last you know two decades right in, in major ways i would say uh, yeah uh, big, big specific uh salmon uh spawns are going instinct you know because yeah. it's hard it's hard it's hard for them to to climb a a, a 400 foot dam yeah that's a good point. And guys, we're, we're not doing this salmon talk any justice at all. The, the whole the salmon thing is really amazing. I have to bring like a salmon expert on at some point to really talk about it because it's such an amazing um, ecosystem and it's such an essential part of the natural world that, you know, is everything is kind of dead. So which is which is sad, but we got to keep working on it. We can bring it back with with our effort. If our efforts took them away, we can bring it back. So what how would we even go about deconstructing these dams is this even possible with the way our economic system works at the moment uh absolutely and there is there's two epically titanic motions underway you know one is to prevent the development of new dams you know and that that's a discipline in the water keeper and other water preservation work and there's still dam projects going on all over the world for economic reasons electrical reasons and so on and then there's a parallel equal one of starting to remove old dams. And there's, there's uh, the Elwha Dam. It, 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 there's these epically fabulous pictures of you open the floodgates, you drain the dam, you deconstruct it, you let all the, the, the stream flow naturally. And within a, a year or two or three, you're back almost in balance. So there is clear evidence of taking down these big mega dams once they are no longer economically viable. Uh, there's a whole series of dams in Northern California owned by now Berkshire Hathaway that are approaching a point where they're not economically viable to, to relicense. And so there's a multi-hundred million dollar effort underway, funds raising to actually remove them and return the water to agricultural salmon, uh, you know, recreation Amazing. as opposed to, you know, irrigation and, and damming. So clearly there are instances, you know, non-trivial and in significant numbers of them all around the world of big dams being taken out. And then I think more significantly, 
all over the country. There's small dams that are, you know, 10, 20 feet high that were built for farming, built for irrigation in their earthen dams. And if those start to fail, take them down, take them down, take them down, you know, and that's happening all over the world. And I don't think there's ever, I, I, it's, it's resistance because we like the status quo that, that I'm not sure taking down a dam makes things worse, at least from my point of view anywhere. You know, so it's a, it's, it's a movement that is gaining steam. And part of it is because the dams themselves just are not effective over time. You know, the four dams on the lower Snake River have silted up. They're not, there's no longer the uh, commercial uh, shipping flow that there used to be. There's no longer the electricity generation that was essential. Uh, there's alternatives forming, you know, and so you've got these series of shallow dead lakes that where river used to be, you know, and I think even the powers that be when those dams were put in place in the 60s said they probably didn't make sense then, they probably don't make sense now. And so if we're looking for quote unquote shovel ready jobs that start to return the environment to a more sustainable way, you know, that those would be really, really, really good candidates. Thanks for sharing, man. It's it's very interesting how fear of change is so prolific in our society. People are love being in their little comfortable state of mind. But it, it seems like the only um, constant in the universe is change. You know, nothing is really in a state of stagnation. Everything's always in motion. Everything's always moving. So it's almost natural to kind of embrace like, hey, we built these dams. It worked then, but it's time to kind of move on and, and, and see how we can become better and create a better world. And kind of obviously we talk all about um, restoring what we've kind of killed in the process so i believe in an optimistic future i believe if we work together and we can be very um persuasive but not coercive we can kind of get this work done so in your opinion what are some of the most important water conservation going uh, issues going on in the u.s at the moment i know you you wrote an, you wrote an article about a bunch of different places that you were concerned about yeah well yes and just as a I love your metaphor there that we're always changing. Flowing water is the perfect metaphor for that. You know, a drop on the continental divide will sooner or later hit Los Angeles or New Orleans. You know, and that's the metaphor for the world we want to be in. And I think Amen. dams uh, stopping that, you know. Stopping are, the progress, man. Are, are a problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, water problem. will find its way. Just give it time. Um, yeah, I put together, it's it's out there on the, the websites of, you know, I called it Leviathan dreams. You know, it's, if you don't think big, you're not going to get there. So we've, we've tiptoed around a couple of them here that there's some very, very, very big insults, I think, to our hydrology on, the, on North America. And the point being, if you think big, then small things might be possible in your local watershed, as we talked a little bit about earlier. And I think the, um, you know, Glen Canyon Dam is a problem. The dams on the Snake River are a problem. Uh, the Everglades restoring the entire hydrology of South Florida, you know, should be done. There's a astonishing little, not very well understood point of view that there's a Chicago River that flows, you know, 100 miles or less between uh, Lake Michigan and, and what becomes the Illinois River. Back 100 years ago, Chicago turned that backwards because they were tired of their sewage flowing into Lake Michigan. So they said, just put it in the river and send it downstream. You know, catastrophically wrong and, and 
biologically may be critical because it now connects a very separate water system of the Great Lakes with the uh, with the Mississippi River watershed, and invasive species from you know from the south are headed up, and if they get into the Great Lakes, there'll be a, a catastrophic impact to that. That's so the point being, all four of those things, you know, Glen Canyon, Snake River, Chicago River, Everglades are you know, multi-decades, multi-tens of billions of dollars of effort, but they're inevitable. And if you get people thinking about that, hopefully they'll look at gross res or gross dam here in Colorado and say, you know, maybe instead of pulling water from the Colorado, parking it up at gross reservoir, the, you know, killing 200,000 trees, it, you know, if only because Denver Water thinks they need more irrigation in Arvada for green lawns, you know, maybe we don't need to do that. That you know, maybe yeah, we can. Maybe. You know, maybe we can work on our own water treatment. Maybe we can handle the pharmaceuticals in our water. Maybe we can put more park space. You know, down by CU. You know, maybe we can really worry about. You know, returning beavers, returning natural vegetation to parts of Boulder Creek. So anyway, you think big. That gives you a chance to to look at it in your small world, and the issues you know float top to bottom. I mean, whatever you do on a national level, Boulder Creek has exactly the same issues. Yeah, there's there's so many challenges. There's so many problems and there's there's so many powerful interests kind of fighting against us to keep their short term profits. So I just wanted to ask you, I'm I'm, I'm really starting to get overwhelmed the more and more I learn about the environmental issues that have been going on. How do you stay optimistic and committed amidst this plethora of challenges and and basically competitors who are trying to push back and keep their wealth and and keep the problems pervasive, you know? How do you stay positive? How do you keep going? Yeah, well, people aren't forever. I mean, cultures do change. People do change. I mean, there's been a trajectory of people paying more attention and, and starting to care. Um, what a lot of these issues are unambiguously good. You know, so, so it's sort of hard to stress or... Uh, if it's the right thing to do, you know, I've got this innate optimism that the, the world will move that way sooner or later, inevitably, with or with, 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 or without the people or around it. Water will push us there. I, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you know, there is, you know, I think a lot of it is, it's, it's a time frame problem mm-hmm. that I think we've gotten to a place where corporations think about things in terms of quarters, you know, you know three months. You know, I think people think about things in terms of, you know, careers. Yeah. I think a lot of these environmental issues are centuries, you know, and I think mm-hmm. if you have a, you know, century long perspective, uh, you, you, you push towards it. C- cute little story on that. I'm, um, Deb Holland, the uh, new director of the interior, you know, I remember seeing her at the, at, you know, political convention saying, well, I'm a native of New Mexico for 35 generations. And I'm thinking, Ooh, that puts somebody there with a long-term perspective. Yeah. And I think that's what we as a culture need to start thinking about. You know, not what, you know, not what I want to buy next year, but what I want to leave for my kids 50 years from now. You know, and I think if you start on that perspective, back to your question about optimism, then it becomes a teaching moment. It becomes a sharing moment. You know, as I said earlier, I spent 35 years in the corporate machine, you know, learning skills that, we're good at that. Hopefully I can deploy that 
that sort of marketing persuasive, insightful architecture skills to something that I think has a longer trajectory. And, and, and there's this phrase, why would anybody be a pessimist? It's too hard. Yeah, I mean, just, <laughs> you know, always hope for the best. That's who I am. Yeah. And I love the idea of the infinite game popularized by Simon Sinek, this idea of always constantly improving and trying to stay in the fight and always trying to create a better world really resonates with me. Well, um, completely unrelated uh, question. H- how do you re- how do you recommend individuals kind of find clarity in uh, of purpose and direction when they're kind of getting started, whether they're young and they want they kind of they need to get a career, you know, they got to bring money in, but like they want they're interested in these kind of issues. How do you recommend people kind of find their path? Stop and listen. I mean, I mean, everybody's always telling you something, you know, and I think there's, I, I almost said at the very beginning, I hear the music of the spheres, you know, and it's not voices, but it's got to be stop, catch your breath, think about who you are, think about where you fit in the world, think about what you want the world to be. You know, and if you spend two minutes a day doing that, you know, you'll probably start to focus on things that are important to you, you know, and I, I, I Grew up in a world where people were always, always, always telling you what to do. You know, you, you lost the ability to listen, listen to the music, you know, up by yourself. You know, you know so figure out who you are, you know, you know and, and just because somebody else thinks it's a good idea for you to do something, uh, push back a little bit and say, who do yeah. I want to, right. you know, I mean, and, and so, you know, and that may be something that it's easy for me to say, because after you know, when, you, when you're done with a 30-year career, you can, you, you know, you got the freedom to listen. Right. <laughs> really, really, really hard, at, you know, in your 20s and 30s. But I, that's simple. Stop, take a breath. Understand yourself. Understand where you want to be and, and act according to values and principles, you know, not, you know, not, not income and opportunities, you know. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Thank you so much. I mean, life is a song and we got to dance while the music's being played, right? Because uh, it will go. Yes, yes. Yeah. You got to listen quick. before it's gone. I hear you loud and clear. Cool, man. All right, Ted, it's really been a pleasure having you on the show today. My, my last question for you is how can people who are interested in water conservation get directly more involved? Um, absolutely, positively. Go out, walk the creek, take a look at it, you know, go to the library, Go up to the waterfall, you know, go up to Barker Reservoir, touch it. Everybody who touches the creek, looks at the ducks in it, watches a fisherman, sees people on hammocks, you know, will come back with a renewed sense of how important it is. If you want to do that, there's half a dozen organizations, Boulder, Boulder Water Keeper being one, that will help organize, illuminate hopefully advocate for legislation and get involved. So touch the creek, figure out how it fits in your life, and then find an organization that supports and contribute contribute time and attention and, and community around that. Just get seems involved. To be, seems to be a trend going on here, guys. Everyone who goes out into nature seems to love it. So if you're kind of skeptical of, of nature, go out and see it for yourself and then come back and tell us what you think. So Ted, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today, man. I really appreciate hearing your perspective and I, I thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure, Ethan. Thank you. My pleasure too. Anytime. Looking forward to talking with you again. You're very welcome. All right, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Have a great day. (laughs) Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate, the official podcast of Climate Change Realty. If you are very passionate about these issues and you know anyone considering buying or selling a home anywhere in the USA, 
visit ccrboulder.com today.